0: We have what i can't help but refer to as a defining moment in the life of the shiloh family that's tomorrow and uh as i approach this defining moment i'm thinking a lot about defining moments in my own life i remember the first one um it was not the first but the first really big defining moment that i can recall was was uh, October 13th in 1995. It was late in the afternoon, and we were at the hospital in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And it was the same hospital I was born in. And same hospital I almost died in after an accident when I was about seven. And there we were, Laura about to give birth to our uh, fourth child and expecting everything to go just fine like it always had before and expecting to be in the hospital for a day or so and then go home and start life with yet another child in the house. That's what we thought would happen. But then in a matter of seconds, literally seconds, our lives and our future changed forever in an instant because as we waited to see whether we were going to get a boy or a girl, you know, people did do that sometimes. They don't all do reveal parties and things like that. Nothing against it, of course, but that just wasn't our thing. We wanted to wait and be surprised, and what we got was a bigger surprise than we expected because Nathan came out with a hole in his back and a sort of bubble of spinal fluid. It's called a myelomeningosil. It's a birth defect that is better known as spina bifida. We didn't know it was coming. Nobody knew that it was coming because after... Three previous pregnancies, we just assumed everything would go as it had. And so, in an instant, we knew that life was never going to be the same again. And probably an hour and a half later, I found myself driving across the Kennedy Bridge into Louisville towards the Children's Hospital behind an ambulance in the rain. While my wife was still in the bed in the hospital in Jeffersonville, and we're following this I'm following this ambulance on the way to the children's hospital that's got my newborn baby in it. And I'm trying like crazy to wrap my mind around what just has happened to us. And I'm feeling terrible for my wife and 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 knowing that, you know, instead of holding her newborn baby and doing all those things a a mother does with her brand new baby, she's sitting by herself in a bed with nobody but nurses that are kind and generous, but you know, not her husband. And as I crossed that bridge and it was dark and cold and rainy and I can picture it just as plain as day in my mind's eye right now, I I remember talking to God out loud, because I do that a lot. You know, back before people had cell phones in their cars and everything, it looked strange for a person to be driving along talking, but I did. And I was talking to God about how I wasn't going to lose faith, that I wasn't going to let this shatter me, that I trusted him. And I promised him with all my heart that I would not let this break us, but that it could make us stronger. And whatever came would be okay as long as he was sovereign. And, and then I put a little PS in there for the devil, just in case he was listening too. And I told him that this would not break my faith that this was not going to be a victory for him in any way, shape, or form. And so in that moment, I staked myself out. I staked myself out. Now, that's a term that I'm going to use again, so I want to give you a little background on where it comes from in my life. I used to love listening to James Michener books or write, reading James Mitchner books. You know, If you're a James Mitchner fan, you know that they're all about thousand pages and very thick books. But I liked them, and my mother turned me on to them, and my favorite was Centennial. Centennial was a book about pioneers who were moving west from the Mississippi into an area that was basically Colorado. And uh, early in the book, there's a character, a great warrior chief named Lame Beaver. And Lame Beaver has reached the stage in his life as a a Arapaho chief where he's realized his vitality is waning, he's decided that he wants one great coup, one last great coup in his life. And so he goes to the village of their worst enemy, their most dreaded enemy, and drives a stake into the ground in the middle of their village and then ties his leg to the stake with a piece of leather thong. He staked himself out, determined to either dispatch his enemy or die trying. Now that's where I get the phrase staking myself out. I staked myself out that night in October and I didn't know what was coming but I knew that I wasn't going to run away or bury my head in the sand or anything like that. Now interestingly, even though I'm talking about this bold decision, those kinds of things didn't come frequently to me. There were many, many times in my life even as recently as a few years ago, where for the sake of open-mindedness, I would hear other people's points of view, and I would say, you know, yeah, you got a good point there, and I would try to exercise my critical thinking in, in complex conversations, and I would look for reasonable compromises, and I would allow my mind to be changed, but My core values never really wavered, but I was open. And what I was really disappointed about and what really hurt me personally on a very personal level were colleagues and friends and people that I thought, you know, I trusted criticizing me for being open-minded. They criticized me for being willing to hear another person's point of view and give it some credence and think it through and, and to look for the middle ground where we could all be together in peace. And, and I used to take great pride in being a United Methodist because I felt that we operated in the middle ground. I had known so many great clergy people from previous generations. In my career, I've been blessed to have known a lot of retired pastors who served in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And, and then I started to know some of the pastors who came after them too. And I kept my mind open and I was glad to be a part of something that was middle ground. That was the via media, you know, the, the safe alternative to extreme right or extreme left or extremely conservative or extremely progressive or whatever you want to call it. I liked the wide expanse in the middle, where there was room to be a family with different kinds of opinions, a diversity of every type. But I got criticized brutally for being lukewarm. Oh, how I hated that. Every time I've taught you about Revelation, I've always gotten to that story of Laodicea and had to just grit my teeth and push through it because of all the times that my well-meaning, hyper-conservative friends would say, you're just like sea you're lukewarm and I'm gonna spew you out of my mouth, and I just wanted to punch them in the mouth every time they said that. <laughs> it's the truth. I admit it. I'm human. You can hurt my feelings and you can get a reaction from me if you try hard enough, and that was my reaction to that. But in the other extreme were people who said that I was wishy-washy, that I I couldn't, you know, take a stand. Well, you know, in my private thoughts and my prayers, it bothered me. And I talked to God about it. And I would ask God, am I really wishy-washy? And I asked God, it's a lot. And I remember one day when this sort of assurance came to me this comfort and thought that popped into my mind was, as you know, Dan, when the time comes, you'll stake yourself out. When the time comes, you'll stake yourself out. Well, the time has come. It came a four, about four and a half years ago. I have worked for 20 years. If there was a long way to get the highest level of credentialing you can get in the United Methodist Church, I took it. In fact, I'm over-credentialed in a sense because I did certain things that in form of duplication because that's just kind of how the process worked. I've been screened multiple times. I've had background checks multiple times. I've had interviews multiple times. I've had uh, you know to stand in front of a body of peers and be voted up or down multiple times. I've had uh, course of study, continuing education, seminary training. I've got credentials, and I've got certificates, and I've got diplomas, and, and I've got documents that have approved me for this and approved me for that. And for 20 years, I strove for this. It was my goal from day one to serve the Lord as a pastor, but also to be accepted and acknowledged by the denomination and my peers. And after the last interview and after about a month or so, six weeks of deep thought and extreme discomfort, I withdrew from the process. I gave up my 20-year dream and I'll tell you why. Because I felt that something was wrong. I just knew in my heart that something was wrong and that... Especially after that last interview, listening to the people who asked me questions and grilled me and, you know, lorded over me in a, in a way that I found somewhat unchristian. I, I, just, I thought about what i had been striving for all these years and I thought, I don't know that I want to be a part of this anymore. I was also your pastor at the time and I want you to know that I also had attained a certain level of confidence and assurance that nothing made me happier than being your pastor. I love being a pastor. I love being your Christian friend and brother in Christ. I I love being here in this community and love being in this church. And I've loved even the really difficult challenges we've faced together over the last five years. I've loved every minute of it. I don't know, in a weird way, I felt like the boss of a wagon train that was heading across the Western Prairie. And somehow, we're getting there, you know? Somehow, we're getting there. But I didn't love being associated with the United Methodist Church anymore. I didn't. And all of a sudden, it really didn't seemed that important to me to get the highest level of credentialing that they could offer me. Just didn't seem important anymore. So I withdrew from the process and I have to say there was grief. Great deal of grief. But here I stand. I have staked myself out. Whatever the consequences, this is where I stand. Now this is nothing new in the church. In fact, you couldn't read your Bible. I want you to turn to the book of Jude right now. It's 1216 in your pew Bible, 1216. I wanna read the entire contents to you. I want you to hear how this is nothing new in the life of the church. It was even happening before all the apostles were gone. It's nothing new. What you will find is, is that sometimes people like me, like you, have to take a stand and say, no, I see us moving too far from the classic, traditional, apostolic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. I see us moving too far from Christ's kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom and the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm I'm seeing us move too far from that. And I have to say, no, I will not move any further. Listen to Jude now. Yet in like manner, these people who also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of spirit, of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in love with God, in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able keep you from stumbling, to able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the one and only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, if you listen to the content of Jude's message, you can see that even during the days of the apostles, we were struggling with the same things. And I want you to go back and reread that, please, without uh, interruption, sometime during the next 24 hours or so. And And I want you to think about what he's saying there because it's still true and we're still dealing with it. And it's sad that he was saying, I really wanted to talk to you about the things that we share in common that give God glory and make us all feel so free and and hopeful about the future, but I have to stop and make you see some things that will upset you. Now, Christ's kingdom is universal and timeless, and it's full of diversity, and I love the diversity of Christ's kingdom. I celebrate the diversity of Christ's kingdom. Jude alludes to it in what we just read, and he's talking about basically what Pentecost was. Pentecost was this day when one Holy Spirit from the one Lord and King Jesus Christ, from the God of all creation, came to everybody who would receive it, who repented of their sins and invited the Holy Spirit to change their entire nature. And everybody from all over the world, people of every language, every cultural background, every color of skin, every type of of person, whether handicapped or disabled, whether male or female, whether uh, confused or absolute, it didn't matter. They all received the same Holy Spirit and they were all able to communicate in a common language, or to be understood or understand in their own language. This was the gift of the Spirit to make us this diverse tapestry of wonderfully unique people. And yet there is one Holy Spirit, one Lord Jesus Christ, one God of all. And both glorify God. Both speak to the unified nature of the Holy Trinity and the unity of the body of Christ in this diverse and wonderfully diverse universe of ours, this people of God that we are, this family of faith he's made us. The gospel spread across the world, and we're still celebrating it right here, right now, because... It was informed by the Holy Spirit in truth and grace. And what you find as you encounter extreme points of view is there's usually too much of one and not enough of the other. Some people are so hung up on truth that they lack grace, and some people are so hung up on grace that they lack truth. And the real spirit that informs the kingdom of Christ and its citizens is a mix of spirit of grace and truth. Truth requires discipline, but grace causes love to abound. And so grace gives us a way to embrace diversity without bending the truth, without breaking the rules that God establishes from God's always and everywhere timeless presence. So here we are confronted with this moment of decision where we want to say that We love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, mind, and soul, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. but we do not want to be tied to a system and to a worldly religion that is starting to misrepresent who we are and, more importantly, misrepresent who God is. This defining moment is not hitting us as suddenly as when Laura and I found out we were having a child with a major disability But it still leaves you as shocked and confused as we were that day, I know. This defining moment is painful and it causes grief. Like when I decided to give up the 20 year dream that I was on the very cusp of fulfilling. But I have to tell you from personal experience and confidence in what scripture teaches us that there's a peace that comes from an unwavering conviction. There's a solitude you get when you make up your mind that you're going to lead and you don't care whether anybody follows you or not. When you make up your mind that this is where I stand and you stake yourself out, there's a peace of mind that you get. And I wish that for you. I pray that you'd join me in it. I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna be very honest with you right now. I want you to join me in voting to disaffiliate. And it has nothing to do with who I hate, especially doesn't have anything to do with hating the United Methodist Church. But because I want us to stake ourselves out on the brink of entering into a new promised land and to be a family united in our purpose for this community, for one another, for this community to be the body of Christ called the Shiloh family. And my goal is not so much to to, uh, separate or or condemn any of that. I just want to be free from bondage. And I hope you want that as much as I do. I will tell you that my hope is that we have a 99% vote. And I'll tell you why. Not because, not just because I think it's the right thing to do, but mainly because I don't want our family to be hurt. Because I want our family to be united. I want us to go to the communion table today as people who are reconciled with each other. And I want us to go to the communion table the next time we meet at the Lord's table as reconciled people. I don't want anybody to go away mad or hurt Or disillusioned or disenfranchised and that that has kept me awake at night more than anything but as the one who's been tasked with being your spiritual leader I I have to tell you that I've made my stand and I plan to go where I go I'm feeling like Joshua right now on the Jordan River getting ready to go into the promised land where he said as for me and my house but here's what I'll say I choose bold opposition to the enemy while I humbly submit my fate to the Lord. With joy, I acknowledge the diversity of Christ's kingdom even as I revere the absolute truths of his divine nature and his reign as king of all creation. I plan to express grace and love in Jesus' name with an open heart and an open mind, but I will not support attempts to redefine the Lord's eternal righteous nature. I will not align myself with systems that, in the cause of progress, blindly race away from the only God, Savior, and Word that was, is, and always will be. I worship the great I Am, And I want no part with a religion that for the sake of progress, races away recklessly from that one I am, leaving him behind as though he's the God who was, leaving the Bible behind as though it's no longer relevant, leaving Christ's reign as king of all creation behind as though it's an old dream with a new human interpretation that's where I stand, and I'm praying that you join me in it. Amen.